welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinty, and in this series, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. In this episode, I catch up with Paul Managuera, the executive director of the Junt Art Museum at Gonzaga University. He's also a Notre Dame graduate and proud fan of the Irish. We hadn't talked in some time, so obviously we had to dive right away into a most pressing topic, the Netflix documentary of Manti Teo. I'm glad Manti got to tell his side of the story, because Deadspin dropping that quote about from an anonymous source about Manti 80% likely to have known in advance and being on the hoax, and then Manti's questions about Manti's sexuality. And the way that that just ran rampant, not just the sports media, but media as a whole, where Katie Couric is asking him point blank if he's gay. And for Manti to get a chance to speak in the doc, I thought was good. Yeah. Um, Nay's uh, story is its own horrible story too right <laughs> yeah. the way that she had to deal with her religion and her situation and the choices that she made um i wish that the documentarians had asked her point blank to apologize to manti right i don't think she ever does if i, I remember right yeah she i don't close maybe a couple times and expresses some kinds of regret but she remains a little selfish through the whole thing well, there was definitely lots of portions where she, like, I remember as distinctly one portion, I th- I think it was at the, in episode one, where she talks about, she kind of stops herself and says, this is bad. What I did, I'm not saying what I did was right. This was really bad. It was interesting because obviously it made you more sympathetic to Manti because it just, when it happened, it was just to a lot of people, a joke, myself included, probably, if I look back on it, honestly, and so that that was obviously an interesting and much needed. But there was that level of even though that Naya was wrong, clearly wrong, there was a level of sympathy there. Like, OK, well, this is why you did it. And I needed that context to know why you did it. You weren't really just trying to catfish him. You, you were, were confused about your own identity and there was this outlet and you got way too caught up in it. Way too caught up in it. <laughs> well, when you decided to bring her back from the dead, I, that might have been the bridge too far. Yeah, or the the meeting Manti as Renaya with his niece after the SC game in 2012, right? Right. Actually meeting Manti and hugging Manti um, and having the niece lie. That's, yeah. And then also getting the, the, the person whose photograph it really was, getting her to do that photograph. Oh, yeah. The hand signal and the date and everything else. I mean, that was that's just so far beyond getting caught up that, yes. It, yes. It, it was a little selfish. And then those Deadspin guys, I mean, I, I might, if I ever meet them in person, might punch them in the throat if I <laughs> actually meet them. Because, right, their whole thing about you know, we really wanted to stick it to ESPN and the mainstream journalists. And that's why we did this. Um, but we didn't do any real reporting. There's a lot of Google searches. I, I did some, right. I, I got all these, I've got all these monitors up there, but basically I did some Google searches, and Google image searches and reverse Google image searches. 
Um, and then we published because we wanted to be first. Right. Which of course is the problem with the mainstream media to begin with. Right. Not fact checking that. And then somebody, I would have liked the documentarians to have asked Alex Ferguson point blank about her involvement, right? She sort of serves like a, it's like a Greek chorus almost for the entire media as she's talking about the events. But she was wrapped up in it too, and she never fact checked. You know, right. never made a call to Lene's family to find get a quote from them right. about her death and her relationship with Manti. Like nobody went that far. So there were a lot of people to blame. And in my mind, everybody was to blame except for Manti, who was just kind of a victim. Right, right. Coming just... from a coming from a tight Mormon family in Hawaii living a sheltered life, not really having romantic relationships. Right. And then, I mean, getting involved in that mess. Paul's journey to the world of museum leadership and art history began when he was a child. He admits to being fascinated by how museums and other cultural institutions provided opportunities for education and entertainment to people from all backgrounds, including himself. I always did have an interest in museums as a child, but it was typically more the science museums, right? It was the dinosaurs and the rocks and minerals and that aspect of it. I also had an interest as a child in cartography. Maps fascinated me. Wow. So the concept of maps and travel was an interest as well as a child. But then, of course, I grew up going to places like the San Diego Zoo. Like, I've been to the San Diego Zoo uh, several hundred times in my life. Um, and that included usually at least a couple of weeks at what they called zoo school, which was the education program day camp for K through 12. And I did it all the way from elementary school through high school, going to zoo school every summer. So you, there was the educational programs and there was the behind the scenes stuff. We got like into the back of the elephant bedrooms, for example, we got to go into the elephant bedrooms. Um, and that always fascinated me too. So, right. Um, then it wasn't really till trying to figure out what to do as a history major at Notre Dame and what to do with the history degree that museums as a career even really popped for me. I was thinking of going to law school. I even took the LSAT. Oh. I was thinking of going to law school and was applying, thinking of applying to law schools. And um, my history advisor was also chair of the history department said, you know, these, these museum studies programs are out there, graduate programs, maybe that's something you might be interested in is based on what he and I were talking about and the time that I had spent in Rome as a, as a sophomore studying abroad as an undergraduate. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I did apply to the George Washington University Museum Studies program and got in. And that program since you, right? That program's a great program because almost all the professors are adjuncts but they work as their day jobs in museums in Washington, D.C. Right. And then they teach the classes specific to what you're interested in in museum studies in the evenings or in the afternoons. Um, so, for example, the man who taught the curatorial research and exhibition class 
was then curator at the Smithsonian Museum, the National Museum of American History. And he's Dr. Lonnie Bunch, and he is now the secretary of the Smithsonian. So that's that's not a bad mentor to have. No, it wasn't. It was, I mean, what a great class to take. And so I mean, all the classes were like that. People were professionals in D.C. in the museums, and they came and taught in their expertise in that program and earning a master's in that. Um, and then I was doing the math last night as I was thinking about this. It's been 29 years since I started working in art museums, which is frightening long period of time. Well, and, and how did you make your way into the world of, of art? Uh, it was something that I wanted and it was tied to, at Notre Dame in order to have an art history major, as I was thinking of double majoring, you had to take two studio classes which meant ceramics or photography or painting and drawing. And for whatever reason, I chickened out, <laughs> didn't do it. <laughs> Assuming I had no talent, which I kind of don't and couldn't fight my way through it. I just, that's one of my great regrets is that I chickened out on those two classes that were needed for the art history major, where you actually had to practice art to actually do art. Right. Um, but other than that, I had everything necessary to be a, an art history major at Notre Dame as well. Um, that and the studying abroad, I knew I liked art history and art museums. And I was just thinking about what's employable and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then my advisor at George Washington, well, she was the director of the program. Her name was Marie Malaro. She was uh, had been longtime legal counsel for the Smithsonian. Mm. She had connections all over D.C. and she hooked me up with an internship at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in D.C. where I was the intern to the chief curator there. Mm -hmm. And I was there all year, 93 to 94, and earning credit for the master's degree and doing my internship. And that pretty much cinched it at that point. I wanted well, his job. I liked what he was doing. <laughs> And then that led you now, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you got your doctorate at Michigan State. Is that right? I did, but I had a, a break in there for four years. I worked at a um, combination historic house, art gallery, public gardens in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Okay. It's now called the Paint Art Center and Gardens, which was a lumber baron's mansion that he built as if you had lifted it out of Elizabethan England and set it down on the river in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And he and his wife built this house. They didn't have children. They knew they were going to leave it for the community as a museum. And so they built a gallery space right into the historic house. And I was the curator in charge of the changing exhibitions and the historic house for four years. I did that. Okay. And, and then, then you... I, I knew I wanted to work in university museums. Mm -hmm. I liked the academic environment. And the only way to properly do that was to go get a doctorate. So that's when I went to Michigan State. Okay. And then you made your way to Georgia a little bit after that, right? Um, I interviewed for the job as Curator of American Art at the Georgia Museum of Art the same week that I defended my dissertation. A busy so week. It was, it was a busy week. It was a little crammed in there. Um, and that just worked out great. Yeah. Working for Bill Island at Georgia and being a Georgia Museum of Art for those it was almost 11 years that I was there yeah and um you and I got a chance to work together and I of course I joke with everybody and I think I told you this the first time we had lunch is that 
I came from a background in sports journalism. I knew this much about art and or art history. But one of the things that I always took from me that you you mentioned to me and you showed me was this is going to be kind of a weird rambling way of explaining this, but there's a commonality in finding something you like in whether it's a particular piece of art, whether it's a particular era of works. And by that, I guess I mean, there's this perception that you're look, you know, you see the, on the TV shows or the movies, somebody's looking at a painting and they're getting really deep and melodramatic about what's in there. And you were able to say, well, people do that and that's fine, but there's also context to when this was created, why it was created, what that means in the corner. And that really, really resonated with me. Is that, did that kind of draw you to art as well? That, that bigger context of where. It does. uh, Absolutely. And that's, I teach a class a semester here at Gonzaga. I'm about to start teaching art in the 19th century and I'm finishing my syllabus over here. I keep looking over here to the left because my syllabus is sitting right there on the desktop there is I have to proofread it one more time. Um, And it's built entirely on a very particular kind of methodology, which is called a material culture methodology of thinking Mm -hmm. about art, that art objects themselves are historical documents. And if you think about them in those terms, Right. Art doesn't happen in a vacuum. Art happens in a context. Artists exist within the context. And so that context is interesting to learn about. Mm -hmm. It's important. What were the times that the artist lived in? Why did they feel the need to create this? How does this work of art fit into the time and the place? And then, of course, the art then adds back into the culture. Once it's out there, hanging on the wall in a museum or purchased by a collector or whatever, it adds back to the culture, sometimes in ways that the artist never intended. Right. And I use the the one example I use in art appreciation class is Grant Wood's American Gothic. Mm-hmm. Right. Grant Wood's goal with painting that very famous painting now was to imagine creating a portrait of the people who might have built that 1880s Iowa farmhouse And he did that painting in 1930, using his dentist and his sister as the models for that father-daughter. Well, of course, that painting, once it was out there, is no longer even thought about as Wood imagining two people who had built that Iowa farmhouse. It stands in for rural America or America in general and all the ways it's been appropriated to sell things over the years, for example, or things that Grant Wood never imagined that his painting would add back to the culture. So that's just a great, perhaps extreme example of the, of the thinking about the context and the meaning of the painting to the artist and the artist's intent, and then the ways that a work of art adds back to the culture over time. Do you think there, because I've always kind of wondered this after you kind of first, we first discussed this, but do you think there's a disconnect for like the lay person that they have to if you go into an art museum or you go to an exhibition, you have to have this academic knowledge or you have to have this crit- you know, critical thinking about a particular painting. And it's more about, well, I don't want to say it's more about, but there is a very real component of what you see and what you get out of it when you go to those places. Sure. Personal emotion and all those details. But certainly there's aspects of the art world that are elitist and feel elitist. And so people can feel easily excluded, especially when they're confronted by something like uh, abstract art Mm -hmm. or minimalist art, an entirely black canvas hanging, giant black canvas hanging in a museum, or you'll hear the comments about abstract art that my kid could do it, right? That's something a child could do. 
Right. Where the answer is, well, of course not. But it's also, you know, Jackson Pollock working in the late 1940s. He was the first one to be famous for doing it. And so some of it's just a matter of being first, too. Right. In the context of the times. Right. But there is a certain element that's elitist, that's off-putting, that people come into museums then and see something that's like abstract art and come in with a closed mind thinking it's not for them, when in fact it can very easily be for them and rooted in something like emotion, which is what the artist cared about anyways, right? was the experience of color and line and form and the way it impacts the way you feel. Having spent the bulk of his career working in higher education, Paul believes in the importance and value of these institutions engaging with their communities. Colleges and universities can provide context, clarity, and cultural education to communities as a means to invite discussion and promote better understanding. In theory, the goal of the university museum is to teach, using objects to teach the students at the university. And so the goal is primarily teaching and educational and then aspects like research and dissemination of knowledge for the future and all those aspects of what it means to be an academic come into play. But first and foremost, it's using objects to teach undergraduates, uh, in particular in the humanities and the way that other aspects of what it means to be a human connect in a object, like a work of art. And you can use works of art to talk about religion or politics or sexuality or identity uh, issues that are relevant to undergraduates today and use a historical work of art and to make those connections in ways that they never even imagined were possible. Right. Um, what was the transition like for you? I mean, you, you are, you're, you're Catholic, you grew up Catholic, you went to, to Notre Dame, you know, the University of Georgia is a, it's a public land grant institution. Then you go to Gonzaga where you are now, which is a Jesuit college. Uh, has you know deeply rooted in Catholic tradition. Um, what was that transition like? I mean, did it? I mean, you 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 and I have talked about the importance oh, of sure. your, your Catholicism. So, sure, there, there's an aspect of it that it was just an easy transition, right? I, I understood already the ways that this university tries to connect to its Jesuit Catholic heritage. That that was easy for me to make sense of. I didn't need to learn that coming to Gonzaga. As an outsider, it, it, it was just an intrinsic thing that it made sense that humanistic tradition, that way of teaching, the way of ways of thinking about the world, those were easy transitions for me. What I liked about Georgia was the way that the Georgia Museum of Art thought about the collection and its connection to the people of the state of Georgia. Right? We were stewards of that collection on behalf of all of the citizens of Georgia that the collection belonged to the people and we were just there to steward it and preserve it and care for it, interpret it into the future. And so that was a lovely way of thinking about that collection that I, I, I latched onto. I love that idea. And so here we're doing the same thing as just on behalf of the university and the students of the university and the Gonzaga community, but also the people who live in this region of, that's called the inland Northwest here in Spokane and this part of Eastern Washington. Um, so it, it was an easy tradition that the Catholic identity part, um, but I really did like the ways that Georgia thought about that collection belonging to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we're coming out of a pandemic, lots of fun, um, which impacted the ability for folks to gather and go visit. 
coming out of that, I mean, what do you think the biggest challenge facing museums, art, science, otherwise, what is the biggest challenge y'all are dealing with now? Um, mostly people feeling comfortable about being together in indoor spaces. I think it's really that simple, right? We are, our numbers for attendance haven't come back to even close to normal yet. And I think that's part of it. It's just people have gotten used to not being out in public together in spaces like museums. Um, the flip side of that is that we also haven't done our traditional traveling exhibitions as part of our schedule at all. Those all went away. Yeah. pandemic for a small museum like us it was just impossible to enter into contracts and pay money and plans transportation and transportation costs when we didn't really even know what being open was going to look like um, so we've been relying on our own collection entirely for exhibitions for a little over two years and that continues this semester we're still doing it um, and we'll have our first traveling exhibition for the first time in over three years uh, in the spring it'll be the very first time um, so that's part of it, too, is there just hasn't been the usual obvious changeover of exhibitions, something new coming from the outside that would attract people to come in. Yeah. Um, so from a small museum perspective, it's more just reminding people that we're here and that we're open and you can come in. So that's part of it. Are you are y'all hopeful or are you starting to see as we kind of move into the latter part of 22 and going into 23 that that willingness to come back together. I mean, I know it, it, it was a culture shock for me to kind of, you know, start going, even going to a grocery store, like in 2021 was just a weird feeling. Right. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think we'll have a better sense once students are back on campus, we're headed right into freshman orientation this week and classes start a week from today. And so I think we'll have a sense of what a, a new normal or a new you know, paradigm of what a university is, what that looks like for the museum. We'll have a better sense of that, I think, next week as students start to come back. Um, we're getting inquiries again from K-12 classes about field trips, right? Those completely went away, of course. Right. Field trips for like third graders and those kinds of things. We're starting to get inquiries again from art teachers and history teachers and the K-12 schools in the region about coming in. So just some of those things slowly coming back would be great. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how quickly we'll get back to what we were before the pandemic or what that necessarily is going to look like, but I think it's slowly starting to happen. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com. And be sure to let us know what you think of the show.